This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. All right, welcome everybody. This is Carrie Valdez. We're hosting another great edition of our East Trauma Cast. We have an interesting topic today, and two great guests have joined us. We're going to be talking about necrotizing soft tissue infections, which can often be complicated as an issue to manage between the emergency department, the acute care surgeons, critical care, and infectious disease. I'm joined today by my co-moderator, Dave Morris. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Thanks for doing it. Welcome to your first uh, Trauma Cast, Carrie. Good to have you well, on thank board. you. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'd also like to introduce our two guests uh, by having them introduce ourselves. Why don't we start with you, uh, Eileen, and just tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for having me. My name is Eileen Bolger, and I'm a professor of surgery at the University of Washington and the chief of trauma for Harborview Medical Center. Uh, Harborview is a busy level one adult and, and pediatric trauma center as well as a burn center, and we're a very large regional referral center for necrotizing soft tissue infections. And so I've had a longstanding interest in this area uh, from a research perspective. Great. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, Rondi, can you introduce yourself? Uh, this is Rondi Gelbard. Um, I'm an assistant professor of surgery at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, where I've been for the past four years. I'm primarily based at Grady Memorial Hospital, where I do trauma, emergency general surgery, and critical care. Necrotizing soft tissue infection is a particular interest of mine. I'm actually currently working on a necrotizing soft tissue infection practice management guideline, looking at the timing of debridement on mortality. And Eileen will also be on uh, the volunteer committee to uh, help uh, form that CPG. So it's a real pleasure to have both of you with us. Let's jump right in and uh, start by defining this disease that we're going to call necrotizing soft tissue infection. When do you declare an infection that you're seeing as necrotizing instead of just a really bad abscess or a complex cellulitis? So I think uh, that's a particular challenge with this disease is actually making the diagnosis. Uh, and it really is a surgical diagnosis. You really don't know for sure what you have until you're in the operating room and you can see the tissue planes and see how much necrotic tissue there is in the deeper tissue planes. I think, uh, you know, a bad abscess versus a necrotizing infection is easy because either way you want to be in the operating room and so you can sort it out. The bigger challenge is when you're dealing with what might be a complex cellulitis, which is a more superficial infection uh, they can look pretty impressive on the surface, but uh, but not have necrotic tissue underneath. And so what I look for in making the diagnosis clinically are um, some hard physical findings, uh, particularly if there's any gas in the soft tissues. Uh, that would be pretty pathognomonic. I look for um, signs of cutaneous gangrene, even if there are little spots of purplish discoloration or, or necrotic skin. That's a tip of the iceberg sort of thing where, where there's a lot, often a lot more necrotic tissue underneath. Uh, sometimes uh, extensive bully or sloughing of the skin uh, can also be a sign, although that can also be associated with a really bad uh, cellulitis as well. Uh, pain out of proportion uh, is, a, is a sort of symptom of the disease. Um, and then uh, the patient is often sicker than you would think they should be for just a cellulitis. They'll have uh, signs of uh, organ dysfunction, some early signs of uh, acute kidney injury, uh, they often um, will have an unusually high or an unusually low white count, uh, which can tip you off, uh, or a, uh, a low sodium as well. So I think it's a clinical constellation of findings. Um, 
but it can be really difficult to diagnose because the skin findings can be underwhelming compared to the amount of uh, dead tissue underneath. You've uh, you've hit on a couple, a couple things, and, and I wondered, uh, Eileen, would, if you would comment about the Lorinex score. If you use that, if you find it helpful, um, it's something that uh, actually one of my trainees pointed out to me a few years ago and said, hey, have you ever heard of this thing? And I just wondered how, how you use that in your practice or if you use it at all. Yeah, so, you know, the, unfortunately, the, the, the literature around uh, necrotizing soft tissue infections is, is, is limited because of uh, the rarity of the disease. And so the sample size in most studies is small. Uh, the Linerick score is a score that was developed to try to help make the diagnosis of necrotizing soft tissue infection using laboratory values. Um, I don't particularly think the score in and of itself helps me all that much, uh, but I do think that the laboratory studies are useful, uh, particularly the Y count and the sodium uh, I have found to be fairly predictive. Uh, the other factors that go into the Linerick score are the CRP, the hemoglobin, and the creatinine. Um, and again, the creatinine sometimes is up as well. Um, I think it's rather than the absolute score, that my message to people is if you're worried, if you're sort of on the fence, get some lab data, get some more data, because it might tip your hand that if it's really out of whack, you're going to think about going to the operating room more aggressively. In isolation, serum CRP and, and uh, creatinine kinase have pretty low positive predictive values, so taking any one of those numbers in isolation um, probably you know, won't help you with the diagnosis. I think it takes a very high index of suspicion. And like Eileen was saying, you know, I think uh, sodium, we do look at sodium levels, um, but signs of systemic sepsis, hypotension, tachycardia, those things when present are, are signaling advanced disease. So definitely um, a paucity of skin findings or certain laboratory values alone don't really necessarily make the diagnosis. And on that same thought, having a normal sodium, normal white count, normal labs does not rule out that you have a necrotizing infection, Correct. Correct. Yeah. Correct. It doesn't completely rule it out. And then if you are in the emergency department, you've got some abnormal labs but nothing that's too worrisome, and you can't quite tell on physical exam if you think you're dealing with a complex cellulitis or necrotizing infection, is there any imaging that would help? And if so, which imaging would you use? Yeah, so I, I think that this is really more of a clinical diagnosis than it is an imaging diagnosis. I think that... Um, it is reasonable to get a CT scan under circumstances where you're sort of on the fence. Is this a, a, a bad abscess? Uh, you know, and you want to sort of direct your incision making uh, to go after that. Uh, sometimes if it's an infection in the abdominal wall or in the perineum, um, you might want a CT scan to look for a higher perirectal abscess or an intra-abdominal process that might be express expressing itself through the flank that would lead you into the abdominal cavity. So I find CT scan imaging helpful sometimes for operative planning in those circumstances. I don't think it definitively makes the diagnosis. Uh, my other, the other imaging that's commonly done is MRI, uh, which, is, which is sort of better at looking at the soft tissues, but the challenge with MRI is it often leads to substantial delay in the amount of time it takes to get it. And we know uh, that delay and uh, debridement of these infections is associated with very poor outcome. And so I haven't found MRI all that helpful, and I don't think the delay in time is worthwhile. There's quite a lot of a push in the emergency department to use ultrasound. Do you find ultrasound can be helpful in distinguishing a necrotizing infection? No, I don't think it's helpful at all. It sometimes can be helpful in picking up an abscess. Um, but even then, I've had uh, some people with pretty extensive deep intramuscular abscesses where the ultrasound does not discriminate that. Um, and I don't think it rules out necrotizing soft tissue infection in any way.
I, I agree. I think you know, often before we're even contacted, the emergency department will have gotten x-rays uh, or even a CAT scan um, that demonstrates or, or doesn't uh, demonstrate gas within the soft tissues. Um, I think by that time, if you are seeing gas in the soft tissues on imaging, it's, it's too late um, and you're already a bit behind. But we don't, you know, it, it is a, a clinical diagnosis. And we, rather than ordering CAT scans or MRIs, uh, we'd rather be in the operating room cutting down in, into the tissue to actually make the diagnosis. I think very much like the in the old days when we used to say it's okay to have a certain negative appy rate. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it's okay to have a few cases where you cut down, you know, make a small incision, cut down, right. and find that you don't have uh, necrotic deeper tissue, but you've ruled out the infection in a timely fashion. Great. And when uh, when we've made the decision, whether it's an abscess or cellulitis or uh, necrotizing infections, antibiotics need to be added uh, as well as the surgical uh, debridement. What considerations should we make when we're choosing our antibiotics? Yeah, so I think here you want to be fairly broad, and you want to go after the most aggressive organisms uh, that are associated with this type of infection. And so the organisms I think that I always want to have coverage for are beta-hemolytic strep, uh, clostridial species, and methicillin-resistant staph. Uh, and, and those are really three organisms that can cause monomicrobial NSTI that is very aggressive and highly lethal due to the toxin production. So it's important that you have good coverage for those. Uh, in addition to that, I will usually cover gram negatives as well, just because they might be in the mix. And so what we have done in our institution is protocolize this. Uh, so there are standing order sets, uh, and it's very clear what patients are started on. Uh, so in general, our initial regimen for these patients is uh, penicillin, uh, 4 million units Q4, uh, which is used uh, to, you know, to cover the beta-hemolytic strep as well as it will cover some clostridia. Clindamycin, which we use in very high doses, uh, 1,200 milligrams Q6, and we use that high dose for two reasons. One, because of its antimicrobial effects, but also because there's at least experimental data that supports that uh, high doses of clindamycin may help bind some of the very aggressive toxin production from some of these organisms uh, and can inhibit toxin production by the organism. So we use particularly high doses for that reason, and, and, and clindamycin has been associated with some a stu- in some studies, again, not great studies, but uh, with better outcome. Um, and then we use vancomycin for the methicillin-resistant staph, and then we'll add a gram-negative, which is usually levoquin, although I would say that in the setting of a diabetic foot or fourniers, I would usually go a little bit broader with a with either zosin or meripenem, something like that, to cover the gram negatives. But um, but we've really, I think the importance is that you're broad, you cover aggressively those gram positive organisms, and you protocolize it so it's standardized. We don't actually have a protocol, but um, everybody generally starts um, triple antibiotic therapy, and we use vanc, uh, vancomycin, zosin, and clinda here. So similar uh, to Eileen's experience, but we don't we don't do the penicillin. And how about you, Dave, at your uh, institution? How do you manage your antibiotics? It's very hit or miss, I think. It, there's some uh, some providers choose one way and some choose another, and I think uh, I think a lot of it depends on you know patient factors. But uh, but yeah, it's something that I think we could improve if we did have a standard protocol. That's a great idea. We don't have a standard protocol here either, but I think we may after today. Yeah. Uh, and. <laughs> And uh, Eileen, you had mentioned the diabetic foot. Uh, there's some other patients that are um, more susceptible to getting these types of infections, either immunocompromised patients, patients who are on uh, chronic steroids, chemotherapies, 
um, undertreated HIV patients. Do you change your antibiotic management in the immunocompromised patient? Yeah, I would say in the, in the diabetic or the, frankly, immunocompromised neutropenic patient, uh, I would broaden the gram-negative coverage and then use either either zilcin or meropenem like we do for Fourniers. Um, but I would still keep the penicillin, clinda, and vanco. If you have a patient who's got a kind of a unique exposure, either uh, seawater or out on the farm with manure or, or freshwater kind of injury, does that change uh, your coverage that you need? Yeah, it does. We don't see those in Seattle very much, uh, so we don't have them in our protocol, but you're, I think you're referring to Vibrio vulnificus and Aramonas hydrophilia, both of which can cause these infections. Vibrio is um, from exposure to warm seawater. Um, there's no warm water in Seattle. Um, mm-hmm. And Aramonas is from warm, fresh, sort of brackish water. So these are often seen in more tropical uh, environments. Um, both of which are, are covered uh, usually by doxycycline, uh, and then you'd add a cephalosporin. So the, the one that's recommended for Vibrio would be ceftazidine, and for Aramonas uh, it would be either Cipro or ceftriaxone. But both of them you'd want to have doxycycline on board as well. Again, we don't uh, see much of that, but I think if you live in a place, uh, you know, on the Gulf Coast or someplace where you're going to see more of that, then you want to build that into your protocol as well. That's great. Thank you. Okay, so antibiotics have been given, patients in the ER, we've determined we need to go to the OR. You're heading that way. What is your thought as you're taking this patient back? How do you make your incision? When do you know where to stop your debridement? How do you address this? Because these patients are generally pretty sick and need to get in and out of the operating room as quickly as possible. Yeah, so I want to. I think you want to think about positioning the patient so that you're going to have a wide exposure because depending upon where on the body uh, this uh, appears to have started, it can often be uh, much more extensive than you think. So if it's an extremity, you know, I'll prep the entire extremity in and, and up, you know, for the arm up onto the chest wall. Uh, and likewise for the leg, I prep the entire leg in and up onto the onto the um, abdominal wall. So you have wide exposure because often, again, the infection is tracking further in the deep tissues and you can appreciate uh, when you start. Uh, and then I make my incision where I think it's starting. Um, and we have actually been, one of the things that we've been working on lately is starting to think a little bit about reconstruction at the time we make our incisions. Um, and so we've published a paper recently in JAX, or it's in press, I think, um, with our plastic surgeons uh, with diagrams of what we call spin skin sparing incisions, which are basically uh, different incisional approaches on different parts of the body that um, will help reconstruction later on. It doesn't mean you don't debride it if it's dead. If the skin is dead, it has to go. But often the skin is not what's dead, it's the tissue underneath. And so with these wide skin sparing incisions, you can you can get wide exposure to the underlying tissues and do pretty extensive debridement. Uh, but the key is you have to debride everything that's necrotic, and the best chance you have is the first go around. So I think thinking about uh, thinking broadly about how you position and prep the patient is important. I completely agree. I think you know, early radical surgical debridement is, is fundamental in the treatment of, of necrotizing soft tissue infections and, and, and improves overall survival. So you know the people that debride sparingly and saying the tissue, you know, well, maybe okay, um, and we'll wait for another look. I think, you know, I, I'd rather take it all. If there's any question whatsoever, um, I debride everything uh, at, at the first go around. Um, and then if anything else, subsequently uh, necrotic at the take backs and continue to debride that as needed. But um, but we do take skin. Um, I don't know that we'd, I'd say we use a skin sparing technique here, um, but we are pretty aggressive about debriding uh, on the first operation. 
and the point has been touched on already, and, and I think it, it serves a good time to bring it up again. Even if a surgeon's not facile in doing these surgeries, you had mentioned, Eileen, that you're a transfer center. Really, as soon as the disease state is recognized, these patients need to be debrided immediately prior to being transferred, correct? I, I, I think that depends a little bit on your system, and, and, I, and the reason I say that is, you know, all politics are local, and my experience has been that a lot of community surgeons don't have a lot of experience with this disease and so aren't comfortable with the breadth of the debridement that's required. Um, and so it, I think if you're in a place where you have a referral center that you can get to quickly that's going to prioritize them getting to the operating room quickly with minimal delay, then it's probably best to just transfer and debride at the tertiary center where they're comfortable with the disease and they're going to do a good wide debridement. That being said, if you're in a place where it's going to take a long time to transfer, there isn't a, a referral center that's capable of immediately uh, prioritizing them and taking them to the operating room, then you should debride locally uh, to not delay the debridement. Um, but the challenge there is I've had a lot of patients transferred in that don't have adequate debridement before they come, and then we have to go you know, straight back, and I'm not sure that that has helped them a lot. So I think, again, it depends on your system and a big component of this for the referral centers like ours is to is to provide outreach to our community hospitals on both making the diagnosis in a timely fashion because a lot of people come in you know they've had an MRI they've sat around for a few days you know and gotten sicker so I think in making the diagnosis and in uh, what an appropriate debridement looks like. Quick question for for everybody really who owns this disease in your hospital in other words uh, I know there's a lot of places and different places where I've worked where, uh, depending on the part of the body that's involved, it may go to a different surgeon. So if it's a foot or an ankle or a knee, it might go to orthopedics. If it's scrotal, it's urology. If it's, you know, truncal, it's general surgery, unless it gets onto the arm or the face or the shoulder. And so is, I'd like to hear your comments, uh, everyone, about who owns it in your hospital and whether or not uh, you think it's reasonable to split it up, or is it better served to have it all in one surgical service that owns the whole body. Maybe, uh, Rhonda, you go first, maybe, and then Eileen. Sure. Uh, here, here at Grady, um, you know, it, for, the, for the most part, all the cases come through the acute care surgery service, um, with the one exception being Fournier's. It's really just limited to the scrotum, um, scrotal area, or the perineum, then sometimes neurology will take it. Um, but, again, it depends a little bit. But for the most part, the acute care surgery service manages it. Um and I think, you know, I, I, I do believe I think one service managing all these cases uh, does facilitate getting to them in a more timely fashion and, and in terms of uh, managing their care afterwards and, and just continuity of care, uh, managing these patients in, in the ICU. Uh, I think it's, it's best served, at least at our hospital, um, by the acute care surgery service. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think this is a perfect mm -hmm. role for an acute care surgery service. Um, you know, I, I think that they're all going to be in our ICU service. Um, so from a critical care standpoint, we're going to be managing them anyway. And so we try to get involved with them fairly early. If it is isolated hand uh, or isolated head and neck or isolated scrotum, um, we will let the primary operative team be the urologists or the head and neck surgeons or the hand surgeons. Um, but we will uh, be involved early to guide the resuscitation, make sure they're on the right protocol for the antibiotics, and take care of them in the ICU. And pretty much any other part of the body, um, 
or anything, any you know, forneas that extends beyond the scrotum, then we involved in all those cases operatively as well. Yeah, that's not to say we won't get an intraoperative consult for one of the other surgical specialties if there's a need for them to be involved. Um, but for the most part, we'll start at least start the debridement, and then if we need an intraoperative consult, we'll go we'll go that route. And how about you, Carrie, and Saginaw? Uh, well, my training was at Shock Trauma in Baltimore, and they have, uh, similar to what Eileen's describing, a very big referral um, encapsulant area, and then there's a soft tissue service um, that is uh, acute care surgeons that specifically manage these patients uh, with the take-backs and the washouts, and then, you know, the eventual the skin grafting is needed. Um, and then where I'm at in Saginaw, the level two center, it's a general surgeons managing a trauma service. There's no resident staff. Um, and so this is all, majority of the surgeons are all private practice. Uh, and it generally goes to whichever body part is involved and really I think wherever the emergency department can get someone to say yes, that they'll come and, and own it. Um, anything that is uh, Fournier's usually just goes to general surgery and similar to what Randy said with a consult as needed. Anything with hand, uh, we transfer out to our tertiary uh, care centers. Anything ENT would go to uh, the ENT surgeons. But the rest of it generally goes to whichever general surgeon is uh, on call for the night. So let's go back to our patient. Heading towards the operating room, antibiotics are on board. We've, you've managed your surgical debridement. You've debrided back to healthy tissue, or at least not necrotic tissue. Um, is there a role for placing a wound back at this point and starting to transition to wound care or with these patients generally in a necrotizing uh, infection, are you going to be coming back for a second look uh, within a day or so, almost with all of them? So I, I always bring them back for a second look within about 24 hours. If they're not doing well, I'll come back at 12 hours. Um, but but we routinely bring them all back for a second look, and so we do not put a wound back on that, that early. I have seen wound vacs put on early and uh, the infection spread underneath and nobody's looking at it because there's a wound vac on it. So I think that it's a mistake mm -hmm. to put it on too early. It's great when you get to the reconstruction phase and you've cleared the infection, but I think uh, you don't want to put it on at the first debridement. Yeah, I, I completely yep. agree with that. The vacs tend to stay on for too long, 72 hours before they're changed, and you know, putting it on just to take it off a few hours later probably isn't accomplishing much. So wet to dry dressing, collect something that's easily, you know, re removable uh, in order to examine the tissue. And, yes, early take backs and within 24 hours, if not earlier, if the patient's not doing well. And when, when you are in the operating room and you're using a, a Pulsivac or some kind of irrigation, are you using an antibiotic irrigation? And then comes the second part of that question is, when you put your Curlex on, are you using an antibiotic soak or a betadine soak or uh, just damp? So I don't think there's any data to guide any of that. Uh, so it's a little bit of you know voodoo. I, we don't irrigate with an antibiotic solution. We do frequently use Dakin's soaked dressings, um, but that's sort of our local practice. I don't have any data to support that. Yeah, we don't use that, um, antibiotic um, irrigation or or dressings for that matter. Uh, occasionally, we we'll use Dakin's after the debridement's complete, uh, just to help the wound, but. Um, but not in the operating room. How about you, Dave? What do you use? It depends on what I find, really. I I, I typically don't add a lot of uh, extra stuff to the saline and uh, try to try to just debride more mechanically and surgically and less uh, less irrigation. I, I like to just wash it out when I'm done with just regular saline. 
And once you've got a, a healthy-looking wound bed at that second look or third look, um, when do you start thinking about doing a, a tertiary closure or, or vat closure, or do you ever do a tertiary closure? Uh, we frequently do. We work with our plastic surgeons uh, who are very interested in this disease, and they do a lot of the reconstruction. Uh, but we'll usually wait till the till not only is the tissue looking healthy, but systemically they're they're showing signs of resolution of the infection. So, you know, the white count is normalizing. We're you know getting close to stopping antibiotics. Uh, we really want to be sure the infection is completely cleared before we do any uh, final closures. How about yeah, you, Ron? Did you all work with your yeah. plastic surgery team too? So uh, we've we've involved plastics and we've actually also involved our burn service uh, on a number of patients. Um, they're used to doing extensive skin grafting, so sometimes we'll get them involved if it's a difficult area. Uh, in terms of closure or delayed closure, um, we will only if it's going to facilitate grafting um, or even vac application uh, to sort of get the tissue to granulate and uh, contract a little bit. Um, but don't often close the wounds. Uh, certainly not completely, and uh, and for the most part, we'll we'll either skin graft ourselves or, like I said, burn burn colleagues, and sometimes plastics will will be involved. When you're at the phase of uh, wound healing and, and putting things back together, uh, or even really just after initial debridement, what do you feel about the role for hyperbaric oxygen uh, for treatment with these necrotizing infections? Uh, well, <laughs> we don't have it here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how many places I, do. Yeah, the literature is not strong. Yeah. Uh, small case series. Um, uh, some suggesting some benefit, some suggesting no benefit. Um, our general stance is that we think that uh, there's not much evidence of benefit, and that the patients that you would think might benefit are so critically ill that I'd be nervous about putting them in a hyperbaric chamber rather than having mm-hmm. them in the ICU where they can be taken care of appropriately. So we don't use it. I've heard it said that your belief in hyperbarics is directly proportional to your access to a hyperbaric chamber. Do you find that to be true? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that might be true. And then, Randy, how about you all? Do you have hyperbarics at your place? We don't have hyperbarics, and even if we did, I'm not sure the literature really has consistent evidence to support the routine use um, as an adjunctive therapy. Transfer to a tertiary care center specifically for hyperbarics, may not be necessary. If a local surgeon's comfortable managing the wound and the debridement itself, that the patient doesn't need to leave their, their local hospital. Would you agree with that? I think the main reasons for transfer are either the surgeon's not comfortable with the extent of debridement that's going to be required, which is a common problem, uh, or they're not comfortable with the amount of reconstruction that's going to have to happen. Um, and sometimes these patients are pretty labor-intensive, so you know, just the wound care that that a burn center can provide because the nurses are comfortable dealing with very large wounds, the resources that a teaching program can provide with residents and, you know, manpower to take these patients back to the operating room very frequently, um, that is another reason to consider transfer. Well, excellent point. I am learning there is a huge difference between being at the tertiary care center with a resident team and a full nursing staff equipped to do this, mm-hmm. and then now working in a private practice, general surgery, managing trauma patients and acute care surgery, and not having that, uh, just the manpower you described is a, a huge difference in, in what we can and can't get done. Right, right. You might be, you know, you might be totally comfortable as a surgeon there having, you know, done a lot of it before, but you don't have the support staff and the resources to really manage it long term. Yeah. How about you, Dave? What do you do at your hospital? Well, we are the the 
sort of referral center as well, um, except we don't have a burn unit. And so um, sometimes I find that the selection happens before we get the call. Um, you know, if, if the transfer needs to happen, a lot of times uh, sort of the outlying hospitals have already sort of determined that they want them to go to the the facility with the burn with the burn center because they know about the you know the wound care and the frequent debridements and stuff like that. So the ones that we get are typically coming through our own emergency department, and we do keep them in house. But it's a, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to try to stay on top of these wounds and to you know and to provide the multidisciplinary care. I think that's a challenge in most hospitals, whether you have residents or not. And looking towards kind of future of medicine, uh, since the three of you are at uh, tertiary uh, referral centers, do you think there'll be a role in the future for telemedicine or video conferencing uh, to kind of do surgical consults with your colleagues that are at the outlying facilities? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's potentially a role for that. I guess it's a tough diagnosis to make uh, even in person, so it would have to we'd have to see how that works. But we because we were you know, a referral center that's interested in this disease and we do a lot of outreach in the community, we do get a lot of transfers in that turn out to be just bad cellulitis, you know, because somebody was concerned about it. And I'd rather have that than have them delay a transfer. Um, but um, but it's possible that some of those we could have handled through telemedicine. Yeah, no, I agree. I think you... Um You'd have to be careful about making a definitive diagnosis or ruling out necrotizing soft tissue infection without actually seeing the patient uh, in person. Um, but I agree, you know, if every one case of, of a necrotizing infection, there's six that aren't. So it's, you know, it, it may prevent some unnecessary transfers. Um, but again, to, we'd have to make that decision carefully. And I suppose if you could actually see the patient over telemedicine, it would be helpful. But well, I think you'd be, absolutely have to see them. I agree. Yeah. Because it's so, it's so, you know, visual is really key. Yeah, that you would so, be seeing them in the ER or even seeing them in the OR, showing you know, this is where I'm at, this is what I've done. Right. Do you have yeah. any suggestions? Mm-hmm. On the on the topic of uh, sort of future technologies and things, do you think there's a role for like spy or some of those other uh, perfusion technologies to in this disease? You know, with, if this is truly a sort of a local ischemia, you know, thrombosis kind of a thing, shouldn't it show up in some of those uh, some of those techniques? What are your thoughts about that? Or I'm not aware if anybody's looked at that. Uh, I think there's some limited data, but there really isn't enough data to, to help us right now. I think it would be a great thing to study. It's a great opportunity to study it. The challenge, of course, is the disease is rare, and so most places don't right. see that much of it. So to get enough patients to study... Uh, in a concentrated, organized way is challenging. But uh, for right now, we don't use it, and um, I haven't seen any significant evidence to lead me that way. Are there any updates in the literature, anything we haven't talked about today that you think uh, we should know for the, the our general listener, our audience member who's uh, you know faced with a patient that they may have a necrotizing soft tissue infection? Well, I think, Rondi, did you, um, were you involved in that IVIG study? For the IVIG, no, uh, we weren't okay. involved in that. So that's one thing that um, you know that we haven't touched on is is the role of IVIG in this disease, and um, you know there is data around using it for streptococcal streptococcal toxic shock, and so it has been extrapolated to this disease. Um, well, we recently uh, did a study with some folks at the NIH trying to look at this on a broader. Uh, scale um, using some administrative databases and 
couldn't show any benefit from IVIG, and, and that's in sort of the broad NSTI population, but I still think there may be a role for it in the pure strep infection patients. It's just we don't have enough data. How would you know who's just a pure strep infection? It would take a few days for your cultures to come back, and then would the suggestion be to use IVIG at that point? Yeah, so, again, you don't know. Um, we get, mm-hmm. We do gram stain and send cultures for every patient from the operating room. So I think if the gram stain was suspicious for a streptococcal infection, that might be a clue. Um, and usually the patients are, you know, quite critically ill and uh, in shock and persistent shock. So, so we have used it in that situation. Whether or not it's making a difference, I don't know. It seems like, at least with the Fournier's patients, there's always an issue that comes up of whether or not we should do a diverting loop colostomy or some sort of, you know, fecal diversion to try to help uh, with the wound healing. And my sense is is that maybe that practice or maybe that habit came about in an era when there wasn't as effective rectal tubes or uh, maybe more traumatic or you leave them in for longer and they cause more problems. And I guess my question for both of you is, um, how often are you diverting these patients? Do you find it necessary all the time or some of the time, or, or has your practice changed uh, in the last, you know, as, as, as these uh, rectal tube devices have gotten better? Yeah, I would say we almost never divert them um, unless we've debrided it uh, so much around the anus that we think we've compromised the sphincter muscles, um, and then we would divert for that reason. But otherwise, I mean, I've you've even had circumferential debridements around the anus and, and been able to manage them with a rectal tube. So um, it's pretty rare for us to divert. It's, you know, you gotta, Again, you got to have that level of nursing care to be able to keep those wounds manageable. <coughs> and would you say maybe yeah, that in, in and of itself is a reason to transfer maybe is, is uh, for things like that? I mean, because, you know, a, a, a loop colostomy is not a, is not a non-morbid uh, proposition. Yeah, I agree. That could be another indication to transfer just because of the wound management issues. Yeah, we don't typically divert here, at least not routinely for sure. We'll wait at least, you know, after several debridements to see how extensive uh, the wound will be uh, before we make that decision uh, to divert somebody. And sometimes if it's a, it depends on also the, the patient's um, baseline function, functioning uh Sorry, baseline level of functioning. Are they going to be able to uh, take care of wounds for this prolonged period of time? Are they already bed bound? Do they, you know, sometimes we see these in uh, paraplegic or quadriplegic patients who, who we know may just benefit from a diverting ostomy anyway. Um, and so in that situation, we would be more inclined to divert, but it's certainly a decision that we discuss with, you know, all the teams taking care of the patient and would it be, be in their best interest. So it's uh, definitely, certainly not routine. That's great. Randy or uh, Eileen, any uh, other topics we haven't touched on yet? Anything else you wanted to add? Well, I think you covered it pretty well. <laughs> oh, well, thank I you have, very uh, much. Mm-hmm. I have one more. Sorry, one more question. Um, Randy, what is the status yeah. of the East uh, PMG? Will okay. you talk a little bit about that and what the what the goals are maybe? Sure. Um, for the East uh, PMG, the, the PICO question was, in, in adult patients with necrotizing soft tissue infection, should early, and we define that as less than 12 hours, um, early initial debridement versus late, so anything greater than or equal to 12 hours, be performed to decrease mortality. Uh, and unfortunately, there weren't a lot of, um, actually, there were no randomized controlled trials, so a lot of them were case studies, uh, small studies, um, but we did find a fair fair number um, that, that addressed the peak question for the creation of the guideline, and um, basically the outcome, and it's still um, 
the final draft is is pending uh soon to come out so it should hopefully uh, be finished soon but is that early debridement less than 12 hours for your initial debridement is certainly beneficial in terms of um, decreasing overall mortality and i think this is another place where the literature limits us a fair bit because we have to cut it at 12 hours and um i know there you know at least in our experience, there are cases that I think if we waited 12 hours, it would have been much worse than if we'd taken them mm-hmm. right away. So we just don't have enough data to discriminate how many hours is enough, is too many, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So I think our strategy is to be as aggressive as possible. And we've taught our operating room that these cases go to the head of the line. They're, you know, they're they're right behind the rapidly bleeding patient. So the rapidly bleeding patient is number one, and then the necrotizing soft tissue infection is number two. So we bump other cases to get these get these in and get them done. Well, thank you very much for uh, both joining us. It certainly is is an interesting topic. It's always good to review, and so much good information came out of uh, our discussion today, certainly things that I'm taking back to our hospital to uh, start implementing. I really appreciate you coming on uh, the TraumaCast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. We really enjoyed it. Great discussion. Thanks, everyone. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the EAST.